said, my name is Paul Frederick. I'm an intern here at Memorial, student at Covenant Seminary. I'm married to Macy, who you might know, even if you don't know me. And um, I'm really excited, honored, grateful to be up here this morning. So thank you. Uh, this last week, I started my fourth and final year at Covenant Seminary. And Macy and I don't know where we're going to be next year. So that's been really bittersweet, actually, the last few weeks to reflect on. Um, it's been bitter, of course, because uh, we're not ready to say goodbye to our friends, to our church, to St. Louis and Forest Park and all the things that we've loved here. But it's been sweet because I think we've really started to feel in a new and profound way how much this place has become a home for us. We feel home when we're here. And I don't think it's too much to say that the search for home is pretty basic to what it means to be a human being in this world. We're all looking for a place where we can be loved and accepted all the way down. We're all looking for a place where we can be safe and secure no matter what. And while we all have had different experiences of home, right, some of us had great experiences of home, some of us have not. But uh, for all of us, I think home is elusive. Home escapes us. Um, it's so easy to feel like we're just wandering through this life, at least a lot of the time, unsettled and even lost in a big, wide world. Um, but we can't stop longing for home. Can't stop longing for a place where we belong, a place where we're welcomed, a place where we're safe and secure. And something that I love is that the Bible is sensitive to this longing. God is aware of this longing. God meets us in this longing by talking about the kingdom of God. That's one way he meets us in this longing. The kingdom of God is, of course, more than a place, but it's a place, right? It's the place where God's people dwell in his presence. The kingdom of God is the place where his care and protection and provision and love are experienced. And in that sense, uh, the kingdom of God is the home that I think we're all searching for in one way or another. The idea of the kingdom plays an important role in the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, New Testament letter of Hebrews. Um, we'll be in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. Hebrews only has 13 chapters, so we're getting there. Hebrews 12, uh, starting in verse 18, that's on page 1,878 of the Pew Bibles, way at the back right before the letter to of James, and we'll be, again, chapter 12, starting in verse 18. I think we'll have it up here as well. So, yeah, this is God's Word, Hebrews 12, verse 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, 
things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, let's remember where we are in the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, it's a letter to an early Christian community which was under significant pressure to give up on Jesus. There's some indication that they were being persecuted by the authorities for their faith, and they may have been beginning to doubt whether Christianity was adequate to meet their spiritual needs as well. And so I really do believe that wherever you're at with Jesus, whatever you think about the claims of Christianity, uh, the book of Hebrews has so much to offer you. But it's important for us to remember that this letter was written to Christians who encouraged them to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful, to continue in their commitment to Jesus. And it does this by showing how Jesus, this is what we've seen throughout this series, right? How Jesus and the salvation he brings are bigger and better than anything else that, that could be, including anything that's come before. This morning's passage particularly contributes to that goal by this message, I think. God's kingdom, God's kingdom, we just read about God's kingdom, is the home that we've always longed for. And what that means is that we can actually really give God everything that we've got. That's actually just a paraphrase, if you will, of the last couple verses in our text. So I want you to look with me. You still have your Bibles open to verse 28. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. See, God's kingdom, right, is the gift that enables us to worship God Rightly. And here, worship doesn't mainly or exclusively mean what we're doing here as we get together on Sundays, although it includes that. Worship is about giving God everything you have, living your entire life, everything you are, everything you have for God, right? Well, your entire life is one big act of worship. So God's kingdom is our one true home. It's the home we're always longing for. It's the only place of welcome in a world of hostility, and it's the only place of security in a world of instability. And what this means is that we can give God everything we have. We don't need to hold anything back from him. That's the main idea. You got it. So now what we get to do is we get to keep looking through this passage together, slow down, and see the picture of our true home in God's kingdom that it gives us. Like much of the book of Hebrews, this passage works by comparison. So it says, this is what God did back then, and this is what God has done now. This is what God did in the Old Testament with Israel. This is what God has done now for us in Jesus. And the point is that in Jesus, what God has done now is even better, and it's worth hanging on to. And this comparison will come in two parts. So first we'll look at verses 18 to 24, and we'll see the warmer welcome of God's kingdom, and then we'll see in the following verses, 25 to the end of the, the chapter, the greater security of God's kingdom. So this is the way in which this passage shows us what it means to come home to God's kingdom. So again, verses 18 to 24, the first sort of chunk of this is showing us the warmer welcome that we have received in God's kingdom. And it does this by showing two mountains, okay? So I don't know how much you know. I went pretty fast, but there's a lot of imagery. It's really dense. We're going to try to see what we can see here. The first mountain is Mount Sinai, right? This is the mountain in the wilderness where God gave the law to Israel through Moses a long time before Jesus. And we just read about this a few minutes ago. So it doesn't actually say Mount Sinai in the text, but you might have noticed and the original audience certainly would have noticed a lot of connections between what the Old Testament said about Mount Sinai 
and what this author is saying. In fact, he's quoting lots of, lots of stuff from those very passages. I'll, I'll read some of this again. It's, it's vivid and very frightening imagery, I think, so we're just going to try to sit with it a little bit. He says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The passage goes on to describe God's command to destroy anyone or anything that got too close to this mountain. And obviously, of course, everybody was terrified. Even Moses was terrified of this sight. And it's important to note that this is not an incorrect or pathological conception of God. This is the real God in all his power and beauty and blazing purity and holiness. He refuses to be uh, casually ignored or to be domesticated by our religious devotion. Either of those options will not work with this God. When we see the real God in all his holiness, we're undone. But the passage isn't over yet. So I hope, I hope you can remember some, some of what uh, we, we read, or if you're looking at the passage, verse 22, in contrast to the unapproachable, terrifying Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, these are all three ways of describing the same place. We sang about it earlier. We heard from Scripture about this place. It's a place where God's people dwell with him and experience his salvation and his blessing, his protection, or what we might call his kingdom. So the passage goes on to describe the angels who are there and the saints who have come before us there, and they're all gathered in this big celebration to welcome you into God's kingdom, into this city. It's a heavenly party, right? And it says we've come to God. You can see the, the imagery building. We've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that is the sprinkled blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So whirlwind of images here, lots of Old Testament references, way more than we have time to unpack together. But I want to let the cumulative effect get at your heart, because I think that's what this is doing. It's showing us in our hearts what the welcome of Jesus that we talk about so often actually means. It means that God's kingdom is open now to you. That Jesus, with all the inhabitants of heaven, stand with open arms to welcome you in. It's just one image to, to get into your mind, what, to get into your heart, really, what it means to be welcomed into Jesus' family, into Jesus' kingdom. So Moses and the Israelites, they were terrified by the sight of God's purity and power and holiness, and they weren't wrong to do that, but we can draw near with confidence because of what Jesus has done, what we know about Jesus. We can draw near with joy and join this heavenly celebration. I, I, I wonder if you know this. I did not know this. I was surprised when I looked this up. There's actually only two times in the Gospels, uh, two fishing miracles, okay? So I'm not talking about fish miracles where he breaks the fish and multiplies. I'm talking about fishing miracles where Jesus' disciples, who are fishermen, are out fishing, and Jesus says, cast down your nets, and they do it, and then they pull up this miraculous haul of fish. So one is at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and the other is at the end of the Gospel of John. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he's in Peter's boat. He's been teaching from the boat to all the crowds on the shore. He gets done teaching, and he says, Peter, cast down your net. And Peter says, we haven't caught anything all night. Peter's a fisherman. Of course, Jesus is not. But he says, okay, Lord, because you say so, we'll do it. So he, he throws down his net and, of course, pulls up this miraculous haul of fish. 
Now, Peter doesn't know Jesus very well at this point, but he, he realizes when this happens something of Jesus' power and authority and majesty, and I wonder if you remember what he does. He falls down at Jesus' feet, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, get away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Okay, pause there. Fast forward to the end of the Gospel of John. Peter, along with the other disciples, have walked with Jesus, have followed Jesus, have learned from Jesus for three years, and very recently, they've betrayed Jesus, they've abandoned Jesus, they've watched Jesus go to be crucified, and yet they've seen Jesus raised from the dead, alive. He's appeared, and then he disappears, and I don't know, it must have been very confusing, but they're fishermen, so you can actually read this in the Bible. Peter, at one point, says, I'm going fishing. And so he decides to go fishing, and they all go out and go fishing. They fish all night. They don't catch anything. Um, it must not have been very easy to be a fisherman in this part of the world. I don't know. But dawn breaks. Jesus shows up on the shore, and they don't know it's him, but he says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And I don't know why they do, but they do it. They cast their nets on the other side of the boat, pull up a miraculous haul of fish again, right? And I just I can't imagine what it would have been like to be on the boat in that moment, but they realize, even though he's so far away, they realize it's Jesus, and John says, it's the Lord, and Peter, as soon as he hears that it's Jesus, do you know what he does? He uh, jumps out of the boat and starts swimming for shore, because he just cannot stay away from Jesus. So what's the difference here? What's the difference? Right? Is Peter less aware of his own sinfulness? I don't think so. If you know the story of the Gospels, you know it's probably not true. Is he less aware of Jesus' power and authority? Definitely not, No. What's the difference is, is back at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Peter knew something of Jesus' power and authority, but he didn't really know him. What's happened over these three years is Peter has learned a lot about Jesus, but he's also got to know Jesus. He got to know his heart. He got to know in his heart who Jesus really most deeply is. And see, this is what happens for us when we understand uh, the heart of Jesus with our very hearts, and we, and we have a sense of the welcome that we received into his kingdom, and we can't stay away from him. This is the Jesus whose kingdom we're talking about. We're not talking about a terrifying sight of this, this great holy man, stay away from me, stay away. No, we're talking about Jesus, your best friend, the most accessible, down-to-earth, wonderful, delightful person in the universe. That's what happens when we come to God's kingdom, when we come to Mount Zion, we're coming to this Jesus, the kingdom of this Jesus, where he's king. So how does his kingdom, we could ask, teach us to entrust ourselves to God? Well, it teaches us, his welcome teaches us to entrust to God our very hearts, right? According to the Bible, that is the, the most central and most difficult part to give to God of ourselves, right? It's one thing to have a plan for behavior modification or to set up your quiet time or something like this, but to really yield your heart to God is so hard. And I think one of the reasons for this is, like the original audience of this letter, we all have experienced rejection in one way or another throughout our lives. That's part, I think, of what makes our longing for home so acute, so powerful, so pervasive. We know what it feels like to be excluded, to be turned away, to be rejected and left out in the cold. And even in a very, very good life, I'm sure some of you know this, even in a very good life, there are not very many relationships where you can really be open all the way down 
to the, the core of who you are. And so we learn to hide. We learn to hide from others. We learn to hide from ourselves. And we learn to hide from God. Maybe some of you right now are experiencing prolonged rejection and alienation in some of your most important relationships. Maybe really old friends or even family members who aren't welcoming you into their hearts or homes the way that they ought to, even. Maybe the pain is really sharp, or maybe you are just feeling hardened into cynicism or just absolutely despairing. I don't know. But maybe the rejection you're experiencing is causing you to turn away not only from others, but also from God. And I think it's so important that we recognize in this passage, rich with imagery, that it's one thing to know in your mind that God loves me, Jesus is welcoming, something like this. And it's just a very different thing. So it's kind of a long way sometimes between our head to our heart to really grab. And so it can feel like the safest thing to do is just to hide our hearts, even from God, to avoid experiencing even deeper rejection. And so whether you're experiencing rejection right now in big and little ways, and I'm sure we all are experiencing this feeling of exclusion, just like these uh, original audience members would have been feeling in some way. The message of this passage is that even if you feel unwelcome everywhere, you are welcomed into God's family, into God's kingdom. That's one of the reasons, again, we talk about the welcome of Jesus so much is because we're so forgetful of this. But when you've come to Jesus, you have come home. Jesus will not turn you away. He will not reject you. Jesus does not have a secret dark side, this hidden you know, caprice that you're going to find out about and he's going to turn away from you. No, he sees you, he knows you, he accepts you, he embraces you all the way down. So you can entrust your whole heart to Jesus. Not your put-together heart. Not your ready-for-Sunday-morning heart. Not your I'm-feeling-very-spiritual-minded heart or something like this, but your real heart. Your broken heart, your breaking heart, your lonely heart, your dejected heart, your beat-down-in-the-dust-of-life heart. I really think that that's what this passage is calling us to do, is to, to bring our whole selves to Jesus. Don't give him half your heart. Don't give him your Sunday morning heart. Because the real you, the you that you want to hide from everybody else, that's the you that Jesus loves. That's the you that Jesus wants to welcome into his presence, and indeed delights to welcome into his presence. That's who he loves. So as you feel these feelings of pain and loneliness and rejection rising up in you and you're tempted just to hot, I want you to come to Jesus. That's what I want us to do. I want us to, to bring our pain and loneliness to Jesus because nothing is ever going to turn him away from you. That's the welcome that we experience when we come to God's kingdom, the welcome all the way down. We also see in this passage that God's kingdom brings a greater security than we could have ever imagined. And I really do think that this is part of what home is, right? It's people, but it's also a place. It's four walls around you, and it's a roof over your head. It's something that keeps the cold out in the winter and the heat out in the summer. It's a place where we can let our guard down and relax. That's home. And so it's good news that the kingdom of God provides a security and a safety that nothing else in the world can provide. You might not expect this when you read this passage, but I want you to bear with me, okay? We're going to keep looking here. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Why? For if they, this is the Israelites at Mount Sinai, if they did not escape when they refused him who 
warned them on earth at Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is something we've seen again and again in the book of Hebrews. The danger of gradually relaxing in our commitment to Jesus, right? Of just slowly, bit by bit, becoming indifferent to who he is, the salvation that he's won for us, and his call upon our life. So even the most spiritually mature Christian needs this sort of sober warning to keep us on the narrow path of faithfulness to Christ. To sort of explain the urgency here, the letter to Hebrews quotes the Old Testament prophet of Haggai. So this is, this is like pretty deep Bible, uh, Bible content here, right, where the, the letter to Hebrews is, is just pulling one verse out of Haggai, expecting you to know the context, what it means a little bit, but we're, we're going to follow him and see what we see. So verse 26, he says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Thankfully, he explains what he means, right? Verse 27, he picks out one phrase. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. Okay, so there's a lot there. But he, he, wants, to, he wants to be focused on yet once more. One more time. Just one more time. Right? God has acted throughout history. God is acting right now. And God acted at Mount Sinai. But what uh, this, this passage is, is emphasizing is that there is one final climactic intervention of God yet ahead. I think it's, it's probably just impossible for us to imagine what this really means. But the Bible clearly teaches that history has an end, that things don't just go on and on forever and ever in endless cycles of entropy or repetition or whatever, but that there is a conclusion to this world process. Yet once more, and then the end. I think this can help us somewhat to, to get at the meaning of the last few words of this passage, which are just so dense and packed with, with significance. It says, our God is a consuming fire. Okay, we could, we could meditate on, a, on that passage for a really, really long time, on those few words. So powerful and expansive a description of God. But the one central thing I want you to note is this, that when God gets involved in our lives, when he gets involved in our world, he does not leave anything the same. His purity and power and love are like this great fire that's burning away all that's wrong with the world that he's made. The end is coming. This is hard, but this is, it's in the past. The end is coming, and nothing is going to be the same. I want to name again, this is intense. This is frightening. This imagery is really powerful and complex, and it reminds us that the God that we serve today is the same God who thundered from Mount Sinai. But just as this serves as a warning against deserting Jesus, so this serves as an encouragement to come to him. This is actually how all biblical warnings work, right? They're not meant to keep us away down in the pits of discouragement and despair. They're meant to draw us near to God, out of ourselves, and into his heart of love and safety and grace, right? So, Let's look, just verse 27, we see this. Why? Why is this great cataclysmic conclusion to history? Is it so we can go back to the formless void of Genesis 1? No. It's in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Next verse. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay, so God's kingdom. When God's kingdom is our true home, when that's the place that we belong through Jesus— we are in the one place that will last when everything else in our world falls apart. The one place of security in a world of instability. 
death, pain, evil, entropy, and decay are passing things. And God, the consuming fire, will wipe them all out on the last day. But goodness and beauty and truth and love and all the things that belong to God, God's kingdom will remain. That's the end of the story that we celebrate each week as we gather together, right? Uh, if, if we belong to God's kingdom, then that means that we're totally safe from anything that could prevent our ultimate happiness and blessedness in God's kingdom. The kingdom that we've been welcomed into through Jesus is an unshakable and everlasting kingdom. A few weeks ago, I found I had stuck in my head a children's song that my parents sang to me a lot when I was a kid. I don't know if you know this one or not, but it's you got to build your house on the rock. You know, firm foundation in a solid spot. I know the storms may come and go. The peace of God you will know. So I heard that just countless times when I was a kid. I have no idea where it came from. I'm, I, I might not have thought of that for years, honestly, but I haven't been able to uh, get it out of my mind as I think about this passage. And Greg spoke earlier about this teaching of Jesus that this is making reference to, right? A house built on the sand versus a house built on the rock. Now, these two houses may look the same, right? They've got matching front porches, and they've got the same paint colors and the window panes and all of this stuff. But what really matters is what happens when the storm comes, when the rains beat down and the floodwaters rise. Maybe the paint gets chipped away in a few places, but the details don't really matter. What matters is the foundation. What matters is what the house is built on. Is it built on a foundation of sand that's going to melt away and leave the house in pieces, or is it built on the rock that will last? To employ this same image in our own way, we might say that God's kingdom is the house built on the rock, right? When God intervenes to bring world history to an end, when God, like a consuming fire, just gets in the middle of everything that's going on and, and takes out everything that's wrong with this world, we know where the one place of safety is. We know the one place it's going to last. And it's not uh, an ugly, windowless nuclear bunker, 50 feet underground, stuffed with canned foods, right? This is our Father's house. This is our home. Our home is the safest place in the universe. So how does this security of the kingdom teach us, again, to entrust ourselves to God? Well, it teaches us to give God our entire lives, right? If, if the welcome of the kingdom, knowing that even as the deepest parts of us are revealed, we'll still be accepted and loved, that helps us to give God the deepest parts of ourselves. The security of the kingdom teaches us that there is no area of our lives, there's actually nothing in the world that we can't trust God with. We know the future that he's promised for us, right? Obeying God is costly. The original audience of this letter was aware of that, and I'm sure that many of you are aware of that as well. In fact, maybe you're aware of an area in your life right now where God is calling you to step out in bold obedience, but you are afraid of what might happen if you do. Right? Maybe it means making a financial sacrifice, and you're not sure how you're going to cope. Maybe it means giving your time or your friendship to the lonely and dejected when you'd rather stay in a place of comfort and safety. Maybe it means not doing something that you feel like you need to do if your life and the solar system is going to continue spinning. But in any case, like these original hearers, we're tempted just to take the easy way out because obedience is scary. Obedience is costly. Giving God everything we have takes everything we have. 
But the good news of this passage is that we don't need to worry about what will happen when we're faithful to God. We don't need to worry. He's going to worry about that. And while it may not fit exactly our expectations for our lives, we know that we have an unshakable home. Indeed, that we have come home to a place in Christ, in God, that will last when everything else fades away. See, this is why we meet together on Sundays. And this is what happens when we spend time together throughout the week as friends and families. We remind one another of the secret of the universe. We're in on it. We know where the story's heading. In the midst of all our daily struggles and disappointments and fears, we know that God is in control, that his kingdom is unshakable, and that through Jesus, that kingdom is our true home. It doesn't mean that life is easy or that obedience isn't costly, but it gives us a courage. And I hope you can, can grasp that with your hearts this morning. It gives us a courage to entrust everything that we have, everything we are, to this immensely trustworthy God, our Father. We must give God everything we have. There's, there's nowhere else to give it. And, and we can, because we know that nothing is ever wasted on Him. See, in God's unshakable kingdom, my deepest desires, your deepest desires, are fulfilled. We are home. It doesn't feel like that as we walk, as pilgrims, we say, through this world. But the reality that this passage is drawing our attention to is that we have come to Mount Zion. We have come home. We have received an unshakable kingdom. In some ways, this is where the whole letter has been heading. And indeed, in some ways, this is where the whole biblical story is heading. The whole course of history is heading to this climactic union between humanity and God, this heavenly celebration, and we're in on it. Earlier in the sermon series, we talked about the power of Jesus' blood, right? The blood of Jesus saves, the blood of Jesus heals, the blood of Jesus transforms. And in fact, we see that right in the center of this climactic passage in the book of Hebrews, as we come to God's kingdom, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, Jesus left his heavenly home for you. He has come to you, to your sin, your shame, your loneliness, your dejection, your hopelessness and despair. He's gone all the way to your death, all to bring you home to himself, home to his Father's house. See, in Jesus, by Jesus, you are seen, known, accepted, embraced, and in Christ, nothing can separate you from that love. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for welcoming us into your unshakable kingdom, for giving us an everlasting home in your presence, a home where we're loved, where we're known, where we're safe and secure. I ask, O oh Lord, that by your Spirit you would teach us to entrust our whole hearts to you this day, and more and more to entrust our whole lives to you, knowing that in Jesus we are infinitely and unchangingly loved. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.